Well, here you all are. <laughs> you made it through your first full day of retreat. How's it going? I know for some of you this is very new. For some of you it's completely new. And if you haven't spent much time in retreat before, at about this point, after the first full day, you might be wondering, what have I got myself into? And if you have spent a lot of time in retreat before, if you've done a lot of these already, um, then still, at this point in the retreat, you might be wondering, what have I got myself into? Because it's just always hard, these first days, these first couple of days, settling into retreat. It's just a big shock to the system. There's the physical shock of just the change in our physical routine, you know, all of the sitting in this very uh, unusual posture that we don't usually spend a lot of time in, all of the walking, the pacing back and forth, uh, the moving around very carefully is just physically not what we're used to doing with our bodies. So the bodies protest, you know, they, they fight back, they bother us. And then also too with the mind, there's a mental shock. There's a kind of culture shock coming on retreat here moving into this very different kind of community that we're used to. Um, even if we live in a retreat center, you know, if we're on staff here, coming into the retreat space, coming into this formal setting of the retreat is still very different from what we do in our day-to-day -day life. So there's this whole adjustment period that we have to go through. The good news is that this is a nine-day retreat. <laughs> so why is that good news? It's because it means that you have enough time to settle in. It means that you have enough time to get over this, this initial hump of all the difficulties, the challenges of settling in. It means that you have enough time for your body to adjust to the schedule to some extent, to a greater extent, and also for the mind to settle in and get used to what's going on here. And that will happen, I promise. To, to some extent, we'll all settle in here and become more comfortable, believe it or not. And I think for those of us that have been on retreat before, uh, either a few or a lot, uh, the difference is maybe not that it's any easier to settle in, but just that we have some faith in that process. We know that you know, these first days will pass, that we'll move on, and things will change and evolve as the retreat progresses. I sometimes uh, teach weekend retreats around different places, and I think that those are actually the most difficult retreats to sit, ironically, the shorter ones, because the whole retreat is just the settling in process. <laughs> you never get to uh, get past that initial hump to the sweet spot. So we can kind of uh, look forward to the days after this initial period and be grateful that we have this stretch of time ahead of us for things to evolve. And that will happen just through the simple power of our intention. That's really what does it. It's not that we have to be perfect yogis, we have, not that we have to be stellar meditators. We just have to be sincere and to try our best. Just doing our best to follow the schedule, you know, kind of hour after hour, day after day, doing our best to follow the instructions to the extent that we do or don't understand them. Just catching as many moments of awareness here and there as we go along. That's all we really need to do. It's just our best with as much sincerity with as much honesty, with as much integrity as we can muster. And, you know, at times it's going to feel just like a hot mess. <laughs> it may feel like that the whole time. <laughs> but it will happen. It will happen, this thing we call retreat, this kind of mysterious thing we call insight. It will happen for each of us in our own way. And I guarantee that we'll all learn important things while we're here. 
uh, whether we believe it or not, whether we like it or not. There's this short teaching from a 20th century Burmese meditation master who is called Tangpulu Sayadaw. I think he might have actually visited here like in the 70s or 80s at one point. He was one of these masters that spent decades in a cave and then came out and started teaching late in life. But this teaching is called What Makes a Meditation? He said that when you know that you're feeling greed, you're no longer in ignorance, but you possess knowledge. When you know that you're angry and feel hatred, you're no longer in ignorance, but possess knowledge. When you know that you're confused, that knowing becomes knowledge, and it's a meditation. Even if you become aware of the feeling, I don't want to meditate, that means you have the understanding that you don't want to meditate. Since you know that you don't want to meditate, that knowing becomes the meditation, the mindfulness and awareness that you know what you don't want to do. So there's no escape. <laughs> if you know what's going on, guess what? You're meditating, you're mindful, it's happening. It's really that simple. It doesn't have to be anything more profound than that. And everything here is designed to help us with our learning process, with this process of discovery that we've undertaken. The setting here has been optimized for decades now. It's, what, 40 years or so that IMS has been going? And it's still going on, you know, with the new construction here, with the new dorm. This ever, it's this ongoing attempt to make the, the environment and the circumstances here just more and more optimal, more and more perfect for us all to do this very difficult work that we're here to do. If you look around, you know, everything that you see here, there's nothing in the physical environment and the way things that are run that hasn't been considered, that hasn't been given thought. It's all very carefully designed. Nothing is left to chance. And it's the same with this kind of strange schedule that we follow here, you know, the sitting and the walking and the sitting and the walking and a little bit of work and a little bit of eating, not too much, and a little bit of sleeping, not too much. That has all also been really thoroughly tested over the centuries, you know, starting off in Asia with the, the traditional schools of Buddhism and then migrating here to the West where we preserved it. That whole structure for the retreat is really optimized to enable us, to support us, and being, being able to really see what's going on. What's going on in this fathom-long body with its ever-troublesome mind, all the difficulties that it gives us. We usually call what we're doing here practice, and I like that word for it because it really reflects some important aspects of what we're doing, what this is all about. You know, we're practicing relaxing into the present moment. We're practicing connecting with our present experience. We're practicing being more sensitive and responsive to it. We're practicing uh, new ways, different ways, more skillful ways of responding to our experience, whatever that might be. So there's a lot that we're practicing. But we could also just as easily call what we're doing here research, because we're learning so much in the course of our practice. That's why we call this insight meditation. You know, we don't call it uh, bliss meditation, <laughs> for example. <laughs> but we're constantly learning things through this process. We're constantly discovering things. We're gathering little bits and pieces of data 
that will eventually allow us to either confirm or deny what the, what the Buddha taught is actually true. You know, it's wonderful if we can come here and de-stress from our lives, you know, get away from everything for a little while, enjoy being out in the country, you know, the tranquility here, the peace. But at the end of the retreat, we have to go back to our ordinary lives. And what we get to take home with us, you know, are not the woods or the sunsets or the flowers, but we get to take with us what we've learned. That's what we take home with us. We get to take home any understanding, any insight that we've gained, any wisdom. And that's what will set us free, ultimately. So as Kamala mentioned last night, right now I'm kind of in the the throes of new motherhood, (laughs) caring for my two children. That's my big project right now. And before that, for a number of years, I was kind of in the throw of uh, a great sense of urgency around my Dharma practice, traveling around the world and coming here and sitting a lot of long retreats. Um, But then back before that, in another previous lifetime, I had a brief career as a telecommunications engineer. That's actually what I studied in university. I studied engineering. And uh, specifically, I was uh, working on designing cell phone systems, so mobile communications, kind of back in the early days, the pioneering days of what's become so uh, ubiquitous in our lives now. It's interesting to look back on that process. But at one point, I was working for a cell phone company that was in the process of um, kind of upgrading their system. They wanted to choose a new digital technology to install. The old system that they had was you know, becoming obsolete, as will happen, and they wanted to change it out. And management had settled on this one emerging technology that seemed very promising, but it was a completely new type of system. It was only theoretical at that point, or had just very small scale laboratory tests that hadn't actually been used in the real world. So uh, even though it seemed very promising, no one actually knew if it was really gonna work or not. And I ended up spending a couple years of my life Uh, involved in this very long, very complicated, uh, very fun and entertaining process of thoroughly testing out this new technology so that the company would have some degree of certainty that this new technology was really going to work, some conviction that it would actually deliver on what it was promising, what its creators were promising. So, you know, we started out with a proposal from the developer of the, the technology and all of their explanation of how and why it would work. And we went through that in detail. We analyzed it. We discussed it, uh, went through the theory. And when we were satisfied that the theory was sound, that it made sense on paper, then we set about testing it in the lab. So we put together these big labs, got all sorts of specialized equipment, came up with test procedures, yada, yada, yada. Any techies out there? <laughs> and um, thoroughly tested it in the lab. And lo and behold, it did, it did perform in the lab. It did do what it was supposed to. So we went on from there and uh, set about field testing it. So we set up kind of a miniature version of the system out in the real world, just a very small scale uh, portion of it. And we hired a couple of hundred uh, temp workers and a few hundred uh, rental cars and got them all to go out and drive around making phone calls on the new system day in and day out, 24 hours a day for about three weeks and gathered lots of data, lots and lots of data and analyzed it. 
And only when we were really satisfied that this technology was, yes, really going to work in the real world for the real situations that our company had, then only then did the company actually finally commit to implementing this new technology and rolling it out through their whole system. So anyway, the point is that this was a really big project. This was a big undertaking. It involved lots of time, lots of people, lots of resources, lots of money. And it was very expensive to do all of this comprehensive testing. But the company was willing to make that investment for two reasons. One is that the theory was convincing. It was promising. It made sense. It sounded good. It seemed like it would really work. And the second reason is that the potential benefits were huge. You know, if this technology actually worked the way that it was supposed to, then the benefits and the profits, tremendous profits from it, would far outweigh the tremendous resources that were put into testing it. So as it turned out, it was during the time that I was involved with this project that I first came in contact with this uh, tradition. I had been meditating some uh, since college in, in other Buddhist traditions, but I first came into contact with Vipassana or insight meditation during the time I was working on this big project. And uh, I'm sure that part of the appeal of this style of practice was that it really resonated with the work that I was doing. It was the same basic approach, really, the, the uh, um, type of process that was going on was very parallel. So the Buddha really spelled it all out for us. He really laid out the whole Dharma for us, his whole theory of how to free ourselves from suffering and to live with greater peace and happiness and contentment. He used to say that he taught with an open hand, meaning that there were no secret teachings that he kind of kept tucked behind his back just for him or for the senior disciples, that he just laid it all on the line. He didn't hold anything back. And if we look even just a little bit into the Buddhist canon, you know, we can really see this. Those of you that have had a chance to do a little bit of study, if you've been over to uh, the study center over at BCBS down the street, or if you have a chance to visit there later, after the retreat, <laughs> then you'll see, you know, there's just shelves and shelves of suttas and discourses and commentaries on those and sub-commentaries on those. And there's just a tremendous wealth of material and I'm amazed sometimes, you know, when I have a chance to kind of dig through the teachings that I haven't been exposed to yet to look through new translations that have come out or just more obscure books that I haven't uh, seen before. Some of the things that are in there, there's all sorts of stuff in those teachings. You know, he doesn't just talk about um, nibbana and liberation and freedom from all suffering, although he does give that a lot of airtime. But he also talks about, you know, family squabbles and business matters and political things going on, all sorts of topics, you know, different skillful means of just coping with life. So he really spelled it all out, him and the generations of the community that came afterwards that fleshed things out. So there's not a whole, mo a whole lot more that we need to really figure out. You know, we it's not that we need to figure out the truth. The Buddha told us what his version of the truth was. All we really need to do is to test it, to do that validation, to verify until we're completely satisfied, until we're completely convinced that what the Buddha said is true. So we come here. You know, this is our lab. This is our laboratory setting, this fantastic laboratory that we have here. And we use our very specialized test equipment, which is this. 
<laughs> this system that we're equipped with, this organism that we're equipped with, this fathom-long body with all of its physical senses and with its mental activity. And we look to see, how do the Buddhist theories really play out in practice? Do they hold water? Are they accurate? One of the traditional virtues, or one of the wonderful things, the beautiful things about the Dharma, about the, Buddha, the Buddha's teachings, is that they're said to invite investigation. You know, I find it interesting that, you know, like in traditional Buddhist countries where they do chanting, they chant the virtues of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, those refuges that Mark spoke about last night. And one of the things in the list of uh, beautiful qualities of the Dharma is that it invites investigation. It, it actively invites us, draws us in to consider its truth. The Buddha used to say in his teaching, Ehipasiko, which comes from the, the ancient Pali language of the, the old Theravada teachings. And that term can be translated loosely as come and see, or see for yourself, Ehipasiko. So he would give a discourse, the Buddha, or give a teaching to a group of people, and then he would say, Ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. Check it out. Is it really true what I say? Is it right? Does it match your own experience? But just as with that, that big engineering pro project that I was involved with, you know, that's a big endeavor, as you all know. It involves a big investment of our resources, time and energy and money, in order to be willing to undertake this project. So we also need to be convinced of those same two things that were driving my company and looking for a new cell phone technology. You know, we need to be convinced that the theory is accurate, that the theory is right, that it's promising, that it inspires confidence, that it will actually work the way that we want when we put it into practice in the real world. And we need to be convinced that the benefits make it worthwhile, that the benefits are significant, that if the practice actually delivers what it promises, then the benefits will far outweigh the investment of time and energy and resources that we put into it. So this kind of understanding is part of what the Buddha called samaditi, the first step on the Noble Eightfold Path, which is usually translated as right view, but it could also be translated as skillful understanding, or even just maybe helpful ideas, helpful understanding. And samaditi, or right view, covers those basic theories that the Buddha put forth that we're working to confirm through our practice. The sama part of the word is particularly interesting. This pops up a lot in Buddhist terminology. You have sama this and sama that and sama the other. And it's just one of these terms that's really difficult to translate into English. I haven't read or met anybody who can say definitively, yeah, this is, this is the right translation for it. So it's sometimes translated into English as right or wise or skillful or helpful. But the basic gist of the word is that something that is sama helps us move along the path towards freedom, helps us to move along the path towards less suffering, away from suffering, and towards peace and contentment. The factor of samaditi, this kind of skillful or helpful understanding, is traditionally the first step in the Eightfold Path because it's the natural starting point 
for our practice, the natural beginning place. It's the minimum baseline understanding that we need in order to comprehend what the Buddha was proposing, to understand how to go about our practice, and to start to think about where to go, what to do with our practice. And so because it's that starting point, it's that jumping off point for practice, it's really meant to be motivational. So it's not just about understanding, it's not just about getting a philosophical grasp on what's going on and what the Buddha was proposing, but really about um, lighting a fire of inspiration in our hearts and minds to step onto the path and to move along it. It should give us the conviction that it's worth making that investment in this big experiment. So the essence of the teachings that are included in Right View is simply that there is a path, there is a way to reduce suffering in our lives, and that we can follow that path. It's something that we can actually do. Those are the two basic elements of right understanding, right view. This is a quote from Bhante Gunaratana, who some of you may know or know of, a very venerable Sri Lankan monk who wrote uh, Mindfulness in Plain English, a modern classic, and who's just wonderfully lucid and clear about the Dharma and uh, the direction of practice. He says, in anything we do, the first step is to know why we're doing it. That's why the Buddha made skillful understanding the first step on his path to happiness. He wanted us to understand that the Buddha's path is not some abstract notion of promising to be good so that we can get some reward, or some mysterious code of behavior that we have to follow to belong to a secret club. Rather, the Buddha's path is grounded in common sense and careful observation of reality. He knew that if we open our eyes and look carefully at our lives, we will understand that the choices that we make lead either to happiness or unhappiness. Once we understand this principle thoroughly, we will make good choices because we do want to be happy. So I just love this pragmatic tone. You know, once we understand what's leading us towards suffering, what helps us move away from suffering, then we'll be able to make better choices just simply because we want to be happy. We don't want to suffer. So understanding is very important in that process of being able to live more satisfied and rewarding lives. So traditionally, the, these elements of skillful understanding are, what are two of the Buddha's really core teachings. And these are the teachings on the Four Noble Truths and the teachings on uh, kama, or karma, as it's pronounced in different languages. And these two teachings can be you know, taught and discussed in very philosophical, very analytical ways, very complex ways. Um, you know, there are people that do whole PhD dissertations on these topics, or just one small aspect of these topics. Um, but that's not what we're about here, obviously. You know, this isn't a study course, um, although we can spend some time with that if we're inclined. But here we're really interested in, in understanding these teachings, you know, again, on a level that will motivate us and that will empower us in our practice. So we don't need to worry about getting you know, for example, a complete grasp of the theory of karma. 
or you know, all of the subtleties of the Four Noble Truths before we get on with the business of actually practicing. We just need to have enough of a basic understanding to allow us to set out, to allow us to step onto the path and just take the next step and the next step. The Four Noble Truths are, uh, of course, the most fundamental of the Buddha's teachings. This is kind of the common ground that every school of Buddhism can agree on, (laughs) is the Four Noble Truths, that this is the basic core of what the Buddha taught and of what any uh, practice that moves us toward freedom needs to be in alignment with, needs to be in accord with. So in pop culture, you know, there's a lot of attention around uh, Buddhism with regard to the First Noble Truth, which is often called the Truth of Suffering, (laughs) really bad PR for Buddhism or the truth of dukkha. Dukkha is the Pali term for what's often translated as suffering. Um, just recently I was watching a, uh, an old uh, recording of a, of a BBC production from the 80s of, of a British play, and in it there was a uh, character who's kind of a new convert to Buddhism, and she's explaining to one of her co-workers at work, so maybe something we can relate to, <laughs> what the basic tenets of Buddhism are. And she's telling her coworkers, oh yeah, well, life is suffering. And I was like, oh no. Judy Dench, what are you doing? <laughs> so, you know, often in just in popular culture, that's the image of Buddhism that comes across. You know, which is, you know, not the, the most helpful message. You know, it gives this really pessimistic spin to the Buddha's teachings. But in fact, once we get into them a little bit, once we experience them directly, we find that the Four Noble Truths are really an incredibly optimistic teaching, optimistic and realistic. Not optimistic pie in the sky, you know, when pigs will fly, but optimistic in terms of, yeah, this is really doable, this is really possible. So the first Noble Truth starts off by saying that, yes, there is suffering in life. Things just don't always go our way. You know, we get experiences that we don't want. We lose experiences that we do want. We can't hold on to the things that we want. We can't keep away the things that we don't want. And that really there's no way to change that basic equation in life. You know, we can influence the details to a certain extent. The things that we might get or when or how, the things that we might lose or when or how. But the fact that we can't always get what we want That's not negotiable. And that's not how we want things to be. We do always want to get what we want. So to that extent, we suffer. So this is the first noble truth. Not so much that life is suffering, but that it's just not designed. The universe isn't set up to constantly provide gratification of our desires. But then the second noble truth goes on to say that there's a cause for that suffering and that it's possible to identify that cause and to come to understand it. That we don't just suffer for no reason or at random, that the world is not uh, lawless, that in fact it's lawful, and uh, there's a a method to the madness. That in fact we suffer because we struggle with the way things are. We struggle with that nature of the universe, not to always satisfy our desires. We want it to be others, otherwise. We want a constant stream of gratification and pleasure. We want to be in control, calling all the shots. We want to be able to manage our lives, to direct them. 
But because the universe isn't designed that way, we suffer. So we suffer because we struggle with the way that things are. Not necessarily because of the way things are, but because we struggle with the way things are. But then the third noble truth goes on to tell us that there's a possibility of finding an end to that struggle and an end to the suffering. That if we learn to understand the struggle, to identify its source and abandon it, that there's an alternative. That we can learn to let go. We can learn to actually cultivate those qualities of heart and mind that help us let go and be at peace with the universe, just as it is, on its own terms, rather than on ours. And then the fourth noble truth, which is the truth of the Eightfold Path, goes on to tell us that there's a way to go about that, a practical way. There's a way to bring our understanding into alignment with the truth and to set ourselves in the right direction and nurture our wholesome qualities and aspirations. There's a way to conduct ourselves and interact with others in a way that supports harmony and that there's a way to pay attention and train our minds so that we can see the truth of things and arrive at a place of acceptance and deep peace. And really, this is about as much as we need to know about the Four Noble Truths for the purposes of Samaditi, that there is suffering because the universe is not designed to meet our every desire, that it has a cause because we struggle with the nature of how things are, that it's possible for that struggle to come to an end and for suffering to end along with it, and that there's a well-worn path leading to that end, which we can also follow. So there's a way, there's a path. We're not lost groping along alone in the darkness. You know, this is a tremendously optimistic and hopefully inspiring teacher. You know, hopefully uh, this is why we're all here, because we have that resonance with this teaching. It inspires us, it touches our heart. This is why we put this guy up at the front of the hall. (laughs) Our great teacher, our beloved teacher, that showed a way, showed a path, laid it out for us, so that we don't have to each discover it on our own, this path to happiness. We don't have to each figure it all out for ourselves. Uh, He gave us these wonderful teachings and they've been passed down generation to generation, you know, human being to human being, just as we're doing here, the same way. You know, there's all sorts of wonderful resources online now, you know, which I take great advantage of. I mean, it's just amazing the range of Dharma talks that you can hear online and the texts that are available now. It's like you never need to buy a Dharma book almost. Um, you know, and all of that is wonderful, but there's still uh, something about this process that we need to come here. You know, we need to look at each other in the face and talk to each other and see each other and uh, have that exchange of ideas and energy. And this is really how the, uh, the practice and the teachings and their benefits have been transmitted generation after generation. You know, it's really kind of humbling to think about it. Hundreds of generations, uh, the people have been doing this and passing along the torch, you know, one person to another. So here we are, you know, having our turn to do it. The teachings on karma, or kama, is uh, a sticky one. It's a difficult concept, especially for us here in the West. Um, So we need to be a little bit careful about getting too worked up about it one way or another, you know, getting too involved with it. But really, just as in the case of the Four Noble Truths, 
the understanding of karma that serves as skillful or wise or helpful understanding is really very basic. You know, it doesn't have to be a big deal. And what it comes down to really is just simply recognizing that as human beings, we are creatures of habit. This is a, a very famous quote from the Buddha, from the suttas. He said that whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. So this is a very famous quote, and it seems very simple. You know, whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. It seems very obvious, right? So the Buddha was pointing out this fundamental fact of human nature, that we're creatures of habit, that human beings, like many or maybe even all other living beings, are to a very great degree ruled by habit. You know, we develop physical habits, habitual ways of uh, using the body, holding the body, behaving, speaking, acting in certain circumstances. We develop uh, verbal habits and to habitual ways of communicating. And what the Buddha said was most significant, we develop mental habits, habitual mental reactions to our internal and external experiences. I'm just starting to see this kind of going on with my little two-year-old. He's at that age where his personality is kind of starting to, to emerge or be molded. So um, he's already starting to develop all these little kind of uh, habits, you know, like certain little phrases that he says always in certain situations. Like he's just, he's started to say, uh, yeah, 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 a lot, you know, kind of the way that my husband and I do, you know. Or he'll say, no, no, you know, kind of imitating how we shake our heads and say no. And that's just all, you know, imitation and habit. And everything really develops that way with us. You know, it starts from when we're real little with that, just with our speech patterns. And it goes on from there to our most sophisticated uh, habits of mind and body. And we've all seen in our own lives how our habits are developed through repetition. You know, this is very obvious, again, with simple things in our lives. You know, like, how do we answer the phone? You know, every time I call my dad, you know, it's exactly the same, hello. It's the same intonation, it's always the same. And I'm sure it's the same for him when, I, when he calls me, you know. We just have these habits. <laughs> it's interesting traveling abroad to, you know, cultures where there's different habits. Um, I remember, you know, in, in a, my more youthful days, running into big problems with things that people do with their heads when they're speaking, you know. So I spent some time in Spain which is kind of a reserved, you know, very proper still kind of culture. And people just don't move their heads a lot when they speak. You know, they have this kind of very elegant, you know, bearing, you know. So if you start talking to them and, you know, bobbing your head around all over the place, you know, they think Americans are just, you know, idiots because <laughs> we look so foolish. <laughs> or if you go to uh, India, if you've been to India, you know, people use the, the head motion movements there very differently. You know, so there can be big misunderstandings, you know, if they, about how you're moving your head when you speak. Things like that. Uh, driving is another good example for a lot of us. You know, can you remember when you first learned how to drive? You know, just how much uh, effort it took to think about every turn. You know, every signal. You know, every movement of the shifter. There's a, we have a teenager living next door who's just uh, learning how to drive, and her father said she's really, really careful, which I'm very glad about. <laughs> she, she thinks a long time about every single turn. Um, but, you know, after a certain number of years, you know, most of us would be pretty hard-pressed to say how we got from point A to point B. You know, it just all happens automatically. 
And as it turns out, you know, our minds work exactly the same way. So, you know, if we spend enough hours, days, months, years engaging in thoughts of self-judgment, then after a while that just kind of happens automatically without really thinking about it. It becomes a habitual tendency of our mind. If we consciously engage in enough thoughts of annoyance or irritation, after a while that becomes the habitual tendency of our mind. If we consciously engage in enough thoughts of kindness and compassion, then after a while that becomes the habitual tendency of our mind. You know, just as the Buddha said, whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. So the sum total of all of these mental habits that we developed, things that go on internally, things that go on externally, over the course of our lifetime, maybe who knows, over the course of many lifetimes, is what the Buddha referred to as karma. And, you know, we've all accumulated a lot of mental habits over the course of just this lifetime, let alone if there have been others. And we really get to see this in a vivid way on retreat. We really get to see those mental habits. And it's that particular collection of habits that gives each of us the appearance of our own distinct personality, what we think of as personality or identity. It's what causes each of us to act and speak and think in certain distinctive ways in ways that are relatively consistent, ways that are relatively familiar, ways that identify us as me, both to ourselves and to other people over time. The Buddha said that we are are all the heirs of our karma. I find this a very interesting phrase, kamasaka is the Pali term, karma heir which is actually the traditional phrase for doing uh, the equanimity practice, is to reflect on this fact that we are heirs of our karma, that all we really take with us from moment to moment is the sum total of all of our habits. You know, what would we be if we stripped away all of those habits of mind? So in a very profound way, we are our karma to the extent that we're anything. So this is the dharma of the human mind, the truth of the human mind. And it's important to understand that that all of this conditioning, all of this habit, all of this karma is not an inherently good or bad thing. It can go either direction. It's just the way that we're wired. So if we think about it, you know, we have to have habits. There's no getting by without them. Just as biological organisms, you know, we have to be able to respond quickly, automatically in a lot of situations. You know, if we had to make a conscious decision about every thought we were going to have, every word we were going to speak, every action we were going to do, you know, we'd never get out of bed in the morning. It just wouldn't be possible. So, you know, this is is a good thing to a large extent, that we are creatures of habit. So the Four Noble Truths, the first element of skillful understanding, explain that there is suffering, that it has a cause, that it has an end, and that there is a path that leads to the end of suffering. The teaching on karma then builds on that understanding by saying that not only is there a path to to the end of suffering, but that we can walk it. Because of this very fact that we're creatures of habit, because of this very fact that we are conditioned, that our conditioning is always evolving. So again, this is not a pessimistic teaching at all, but a very optimistic and empowering one. It says that our minds are malleable, which is exactly what 
modern neuroscience is beginning to discover or has been discovering for a while now. And I know that there are some people here that, that work in this field, which is really fascinating, that there's not a point at which we're grown up <laughs> and the mind is fixed, that we're kind of set in stone for the rest of our lives, that really it's an ongoing process all throughout our lives. The way that we use our minds changes how they're structured, which in turn uh, det determines how, the, how we use them. This is uh, this ongoing cycle. And the Buddha understood this you know, 2,600 years ago just from observing his own mind and seeing how it worked. So the teaching on karma on the most fundamental level says simply that we can change and that we have some power to influence that change, to influence the way that we change. That in fact we are changing all the time, whether we choose to get involved in the process or not. So we might as well get involved and try to influence it for the better. We can take effective action to move along that path towards freedom, to ensure that we're developing more wholesome, more helpful, more skillful habits, and taking the wind out of the sails of those that are less wholesome, less helpful, that move us towards suffering. The Buddha said, cultivate what is wholesome. It is possible to cultivate what is wholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. So cultivate what is wholesome. I love these kinds of teachings. You know, they're just so practical. <laughs> if it wasn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. And that's kind of the same thing that we say to all of you from up here. You know, it is possible, so do it. <laughs> if it weren't possible, we wouldn't ask you to do it. We wouldn't bother with this. We wouldn't make this big investment if it weren't possible. But it is possible. This is the, the upside of one of the universal characteristics, what's called the universal characteristics of existence, which is that everything changes, which we all really know on a basic level just from observing life. And we'll talk about this more as the retreat goes on. But it's this idea that everything is just constantly in flux, including us, including everything around us, that everything's impermanent. There's nothing that we can hold on to, however much we might want to. You know, so I can't keep my son a cute little two-year-old forever, <laughs> however much I might want to, although I don't think I would survive it. <laughs> but there's also an upside to this character characteristic of impermanence, which is that we're not necessarily stuck with anything. Not necessarily. Not if we work with it in the right way. That because everything is changing, you know, whatever that you know, thing about yourself, that thing about your mind that you just hate is, it's not uh, a given. It's not set in stone. It's workable. There's room to maneuver if we approach it in the, in the right way. I sometimes think of the mind as kind of a large luxury liner, kind of like, uh, you know, the Queen Elizabeth or the love boat. I was a big love boat fan in the 70s. <laughs> so, you know, a ship like that, if you've ever been on one or if you've seen one, it's got this, you know, they're just huge. They're these huge edifices and they've got a tremendous mass and they don't, they don't turn on a dime. <laughs> That's not in their nature. You don't just turn the steering wheel and zip around the other direction. But they do turn. They are steerable within their parameters of how they operate, of how they move, of how they're built, of how they're constructed. And our minds are very much like that. You know, they're the same. There's kind of this huge edifice of you know, years and years of conditioning. You know, everything that's been input to us, every, all the choices that we've made, everything that we've done with our lives. Um, there's this huge bulk of conditioning. And it won't just turn on a dime, but it does turn. It does turn. Again, you know, whether or not we get involved in the process, 
things, things evolve. So we might as well get involved and take hold of that steering wheel and choose the direction that we're going rather than just being batted about by the tide and the waves. So it's just this very basic kind of understanding of the Four Noble Truths and of karma that together make up what the Buddha called skillful understanding. And this is our starting point for stepping onto the Eightfold Path, our starting point for stepping into a retreat like this. The Buddha said that having a complete understanding of the Four Noble Truths is analogous or equivalent to full enlightenment. It's the same thing. If we completely, fully understand the Four Noble Truths, then we are fully enlightened, or vice versa. Or in other words, it's not until we're fully enlightened that we can really have a complete understanding of what the Buddha was pointing to with this teaching. And he also said that only a Buddha, only a Buddha can fully understand the workings of karma. Not even just your run-of-the-mill, fully enlightened being, but a Buddha. <laughs> It'd be too much just for an ordinary arahant. Um, and he actually said that trying to, com- to grasp all the complexities of karma, if you spend too much time thinking about karma, it will make you mad. So I feel fairly confident in asserting that none of us here in this room really have a complete understanding of these teachings. And that includes those of us sitting up here talking about them. You know, it's really a work in progress for all of us. We're all on this path together, all moving towards a fuller understanding, a more complete validation, a more complete confirmation of these teachings over time. So it's not really helpful or appropriate to um, feel any sense of inadequacy if this all doesn't make sense at this point, or if parts of it don't make sense. That's okay. You know, it's unreasonable to really expect that everything makes perfect sense. Instead, it's our practice. It's our practice itself that's going to gradually clarify these things for us in different ways as we move along the path. When we relate to these teachings with skillful understanding, then we can feel a sense of joy and delight whenever things just get a little bit clearer, when something opens up and we have an insight, and that all makes a little bit more sense. A sense of joy from being on this path that will lead to a deepening of understanding, a lessening of suffering over time. On the other hand, it's also not appropriate to just accept these teachings blindly, to just take them on blind faith. If we just accept them as a given, then we won't feel motivated to actually investigate it, to, to actually investigate them, to really check them out for ourselves. If we just, you know, we hear the teachings on the Four Noble Truths, we hear some teachings on karma, and we say, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. You know, check, done. You know, That's not the point of these teachings either. It's really helpful to have a certain amount of Uh, healthy skepticism, of curiosity. What is this all really about? So the most helpful relationship that we can have towards these teachings and skillful understanding is one of what we might call open-minded skepticism. You know, if we're not skeptical at all, as I said, we won't necessarily feel any motivation to practice, to actually look into our own bodies and minds. But if we're too skeptical, then we may never actually get around to getting on the cushion. You know, if we feel like we have to have 
the Four Noble Truths or Karma or other teachings completely explained if we need to read you know, multiple books and have lots of conversations to, to work out all the details in our minds before we actually sit down on the cushion, that we may just never get there. So neither of those extremes is productive. Neither of those is helpful or skillful or sama. What is productive is to take the middle path, to be skeptical enough to want to investigate for ourselves, but not so skeptical that it becomes a hindrance in our practice. To be willing to do the practice, to be willing to do that experiment, to put the resources into it, to, to gather the data, to do the research, and to see what results it shows. Does our direct personal experience confirm what the Buddha taught or not? You know, this is a question that we each have to answer for ourselves based on our own personal experience. No one else can really give us that answer. No one else's answer really matters to us. So we slog through our days here. <laughs> we do our research. We gather our data. And I'll give just a couple of very mundane examples. And this is one that often comes up in the early days of retreat. We get a lot of good teachings from our, our venerable teacher, Physical Pain. This may have come up once or twice today. So we're sitting, we're minding our own business, and some discomfort arises in the body. You know, we didn't order it. We didn't put it on our checklist for today. It just came. And at first, maybe we're OK with this. You know, we're like, okay, here I am on retreat. I'm a yogi. I'm being mindful. Let me just sit with it. So maybe we feel, okay, pain, pain, pain. Yes, it's painful. Okay, burning, burning, tight, tight, whatever it is. Check it out. Feel the sensations there. But then maybe after a while, it doesn't go away like it's supposed to. <laughs> or maybe it gets worse even. Ugh. And we begin to notice that maybe we're not quite so okay with that anymore. We're not quite so content to just sit and notice what's going on. But we really want it to go away. Maybe we can see that we're frightened uh, or angry with it. Maybe we feel like the body has betrayed us. Maybe we feel despair or anguish or hopelessness. Maybe we feel like we just can't stand it any longer. It's unbearable. Then maybe, at that point, we, we remember the instructions and we, be, we become aware of those things. We notice the anger, we notice the fear. We give a little room to those, we take them in. And maybe the mind relaxes a bit with that and just settles into, okay, angry, frightened, hopeless. And then suddenly maybe it's okay again. Maybe just for a moment or two, just a moment or two of kind of ease as we relax into the truth of that experience. And all of this can unfold over the course of just a few minutes even just a few breaths sometimes. But in that time, we've seen the Four Noble Truths in action, just in that very simple, very mundane experience. We've seen dukkha arise, this uncontrollable arrival of something that we did not want, something that's causing us suffering. We see how we struggle with it, how the mind reacts with aversion. And we see how it's possible to let go of that struggle, even just for a little while, by opening to it by coming into fuller contact with the way that things really are. And we've walked that short path of opening and acceptance that made that possible. 
So just in this very simple mundane experience, we've gathered one data point on our research into the Four Noble Truths. And we do this over and over and over and over and over and over again as we practice. Whether we realize it or not, you know, we don't have to uh, intellectually analyze that this is what's going on. In fact, we encourage you not to. <laughs> but it's happening, and it sinks in. The mind gets it little by little. Taking again the example of our venerable teacher, physical pain, we may another time be sitting, just minding our own business, and again, some discomfort arises in the body, and maybe there's some immediate reaction of aversion. You know, oh no, not this again. You know, this is going to ruin my sitting. You know, this, I, I worked with this all day yesterday. I can't believe it's back again. But we try our best to be mindful. We try our best to keep our attention on the physical sensations and also to include the aversion and all of those thoughts going through the mind. And maybe it passes or maybe it doesn't and we just adjust our posture eventually. But we try our best throughout the experience just to stay as connected as we can, just to do our best with it. And maybe the same basic scenario plays out every time that physical pain comes up, that there's some discomfort in the body. But then maybe there comes a time when a physical discomfort arises and we don't immediately think, oh no, that doesn't happen right off. Maybe we don't think anything. Maybe we just notice the sensations without the mind chiming in with some kind of judgment about it. Or maybe we notice it with some quality of real interest, curiosity. Or maybe we notice it with some quality of compassion and kindness. And maybe just even a few moments later, you know, that habitual response of, oh no, comes comes in. You know, maybe just a fraction of a moment later. But something has changed in that equation. Something's different there. Something has shifted in our habitual reaction to physical discomfort. So again, just in this very simple, mundane kind of way that may last just even a few moments, we've gathered one data point about the workings of karma. We've seen that our habitual response to an experience can shift, even just a little bit, in a certain amount of time, as a result of our practice, as a result of our effort and our intention and our sincerity. And we do this over and over again as we move through our time here. So it's through this very gradual process of accumulating just many small bits and pieces about the data, about the Buddha's theories, that the wheel of the Dharma turns. Each time we observe directly for ourselves the operation of the Four Noble Truths in karma, as they actually play out in our own experience, the wheel of the Dharma turns. Our skillful understanding becomes just a little more empirical, something that we've actually verified to some extent through our own observations. And it becomes just a little bit less theoretical, something that's only conjecture and speculation, until we reach that point where we really are confident, putting it into full deployment, really bringing it fully into our lives. Just on the way uh, over here tonight, walking up the the path from the parking lot, uh, there's just one little clump of um, really big Queen Anne's lace. It's really beautiful. You may have noticed it, because yogis tend to notice everything. or you may notice it. But I was just marveling at you know, the Queen Anne's lace, how the flowers are made. They're just so delicate. And they're these 
countless numbers of just teeny tiny little petals. You know, each one in, its, in and of itself is nothing. But they come together in that, that pattern of, of all the petals together in the Queen Anne's Lace. And this beautiful um, design emerges that's so, so uh, lovely and so ephemeral and so light. And this is really how the practice comes together for us. You know, every time we have one of those moments where we're just really sitting with as much patience, as much sincerity, as much integrity as we can muster just to try to be with a breath or to try to be with a pain in the knee or to try to be with some obsessive thought pattern. You know, that's one of the little petals on the Queen Anne's Lace. And it may be quite some time before we have enough of those that the pattern begins to emerge. But when we do and we start to see that pattern coming out of all the chaos and the madness, then it can be just the most beautiful thing that we've ever seen. We just have, the, have to have the patience to do the work and to gather the data. So let's sit for a moment. Cultivate what is wholesome. It is possible to cultivate what is wholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. So cultivate what is wholesome. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.